And so um, the background to Psalm 3 is found in 2 Samuel, which is why um, I had Anna read uh, that to us this morning. Um, but we will now read from Psalm 3, and then we'll pray, and then we will dig in to our study. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, you are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept and I woke again because Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Yahweh. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to this passage this morning, that you would bless our time, you would encourage us, you would strengthen us, and you would lift us up, Lord. We need your word to encourage us this day. We need your word to strengthen and sustain us. And it is our prayer that you would do just that today. We do not trust in the words of a pastor. We do not trust in the religious gathering. We trust in you. And we trust in your given word. That when your word is proclaimed faithfully, that you will equip your saints. That they might minister one to another. And that we as a body, together, united would mature into the image of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, Psalm 3, let's dig in. Remember what we've said so far. Psalms 1 and 2 were set apart. They were set apart in many different ways, um, <clears throat> structurally. The beginning of Psalm 1 began with, Blessed is the man. And the end of Psalm 2 ended with, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It was a blessed sandwich, or an inclusio if you want the technical term. It were two blessed bookends that created a unity of Psalms 1 and 2. We know that David wrote at least Psalm 2, probably Psalm 1 as well, because we're told that he did in Acts chapter uh, 2, I believe it is, or Acts chapter 4. Um, but we know that David wrote that, but we don't have the, the superscription saying that David wrote them, because these are foundational psalms. This is, this is not to say here is a particular circumstance, but here are the psalms that set us up for the rest of the book of Psalms. And it's important that we did them first. Because, as I keep saying to you, <coughs> pardon me, and I will continue to say to you, the book of Psalms is not merely a gathering of songs that have been put together, but there is a progression in the book of Psalms that is almost as significant as you would have in a gospel or in the book of Ephesians or in the book of Romans. You, you would want to study the book of Romans, for example, chapter 1, then chapter 2, then chapter 3, so that you see the story develop. You see the revelation unfold. You see the arguments build upon one another. And the book of Psalms is no different. 
<clears throat> so when we did Psalm 1, <clears throat> our, per, our first um, port of call as a departure from the Psalms was to Deuteronomy 17. And we noted in Deuteronomy 17 that when uh, the law was given specifically to kings, that there were three things that they were not supposed to do. They involved horses, military might, and women and gold. They weren't to gather too much of those things. Three things not to do, and then one thing that they had to do. They had to know the Bible. They had to know the law of God. They had to know it, and so important was it that they knew it, that they had to literally write the entirety of the law. Quite probably Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in their entirety, and quite possibly by this point in history that the understanding of Torah would have extended beyond that and they would have been writing out Joshua and Judges and things of that nature as well, and quite probably the book of Job. And they literally had to write it down so that the law became their law, that the word the Bible became theirs, that they owned it. Then when we come to Psalm 1, we see that parallel. The blessed man here in Psalm, Psalm 1, he's told three things not to do, and then the one thing that he has to do is the same thing. The one thing he has to do is to know the law. His delight is in the law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh, and on his law, he meditates day and night. As I said to you when we did Psalm 1, the his there does not mean Yahweh's law, but the law of the blessed one. Because the blessed one, who we'll see in a moment is a king, has to write down the law. That's what kings had to do because of their responsibility to know the law. So this blessed one is not just a random blessed person. It is a specific blessed one who through the allusion to Deuteronomy 17 is a king. And the wicked that would oppose him are like chaff that the wind drives away. And we see in verse 5 of chapter 1 that the wicked will not rise. The most English versions use the word stand in translation. The Hebrew is rise. The wicked will not rise up on the day of judgment. Their condemnation is assured. Now, when we come to Psalm 2 which is, again, in that blessed sandwich connected to Psalm 1. It speaks of the kings of the earth, the rulers taking counsel. We spoke about the earthly rulers and the heavenly rulers, the spiritual dimension between, behind earthly leadership, and that these leaders, these rulers, were plotting against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his anointed. Verse 3, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. And the bonds and the cords in the context of Psalm 1 is God's law. It's God's rules. It's God's instructions. We don't want to be bound by that. We will do things our way. We will do things the way that we want to do them. And in response to those kings, Yahweh laughs because in verse 6, he has set up his own king on Zion, his holy hill. And so this eschatological psalm speaks of a king. Deuteronomy 17 tells us what kings must do. Psalm chapter 1 tells us that this blessed man is a king who is writing that law down, who is delighting in that law, who is obeying that law. And now we see who that king is. He is the Lord's anointed one. 
Now, this doesn't come in a vacuum. Right from Genesis 3, there was the promise that the Lord would have an anointed one who would rise up to crush the head of the serpent. All of this is going to be relevant to Psalm 3. Then by the time we hit Genesis 12, 15, 17, we have God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham will be given a great name. Abraham will, will also um, have one who will come from his loins. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But one of his own flesh who will rise up and that kings will come from him. So the idea that an anointed one, a Messiah, would save the people from the wicked, would save the people from the ways of the wicked, would, would allow righteousness to fill the earth as God had always intended. And that this anointed one would be a king. God's anointed king is nothing new. And by the time we get to first, uh, sorry, Second Samuel and First Chronicles, we have the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is given in two parallel passages, Second Samuel and First Chronicles. One of those passages seems to speak of Solomon. It speaks of his sin and how God will forgive him of his sin and how his sin will not allow the covenant to be ended. That this covenant is an unconditional covenant and sin will not stop it from coming to pass. And then the other parallel passage in 1 Chronicles speaks of the son of David, but this one doesn't mention sin. And Solomon is referred to as the one that comes from the loins of David. And in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, there's only two places that that expression is used, of Abraham in Genesis um, 15 and of, of Solomon in uh, 2 Samuel. Because this is the line this is the line that the seed comes from. But in the first Chronicles, there's no mention of Solomon. There's no mention of a seed. There is the mention of the kingdom, the kingdom lasting forever. But now we have a different son of David, one who will be without sin and one who will, make, who will be eternal and make this kingdom last forever. And what is so important for us in the Psalms to understand is this. This is why I'm repeating all of this. That the first Chronicles and 2 Samuel passages, one speaks of Solomon, one speaks of Jesus, but the language is almost identical with just two exceptions. Solomon is the one that comes directly from his loins, so to speak, and also he's the one who will sin and the other one doesn't sin. But the fact that all the other expressions are the same creates a link between the physical king in the here and now and the king who is to come. Still a physical king, still going to physically rule and physically reign on a physical hill, in a physical temple, on the physical earth, but one who is to come in the future. So with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, we have not a massive amount of new information, but a gathering of information and the setting up of the stalls of the Psalms, so to speak. This is going to be a psalm. And these are going to be psalms. And this will be a collection of psalms that will speak of the one who is God's anointed, his chosen king, with, through whom God will bring about his purposes on the earth. And he will vanquish his enemies. And so when we come to Psalm 3, we have the first of the psalms with a superscription, and we now get from our foundation, which I hope I've reiterated sufficiently um, thoroughly and yet sufficiently briefly. Um, we now come to Psalm 3 and we have a particular historical circumstance where these principles 
are now going to be applied. And the revelation will continue to progress. So let's have a look at it. Right at the beginning, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Okay, lots of things to note, and we haven't got to verse 1 yet. If you read Hebrew in your Hebrew Bible, this is verse 1. And what we call in English verse 1 is verse 2. Why, oh why, we do not give these superscriptions numeric verses, I do not know. But please do not be under the illusion that simply because there is not a verse assigned to it, that it is not inspired of God, because it is. So when we look here at this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom's son, we have a specific geographical and historical place and time. So we should probably turn there, shouldn't we? Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 17. 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 17. We really need to look at two chapters, but I cheated by getting Anna to read one for us earlier. So we have these circumstances, and there's a lot here, and if you're not familiar with the historical books, boy, there's a lot to catch up on. There is a lot to catch up on. And it all starts with sin. David is, is supposed to be at war like, like kings should have been, leading his people. And he gets up off his couch one afternoon. That's exactly what the Bible says. Gets off his couch in the afternoon and goes out and sees Bathsheba bathing. She's bathing according to the requirements of Mosaic law following her, her uh, period and she was required to bathe to make herself, herself clean for a period of time. And she is doing that and he sees her and he wants her. And most of you know this part of the story. That he finds out who she is and uh, he brings her to him. And he commits adultery with her. And she probably didn't get much say in the matter, quite frankly. The way things were at that time with him being king. And then... He finds out that she's pregnant. And because of that, his sin, rather than being confessed and repented of, and there's only two ways that you go with sin, really, isn't there? You either confess and repent, or you sin more. And David chose the latter. And he continued in his sin, which resulted in the murder, because that's what it was, of her husband Uriah. And let us not forget the murder of several other soldiers to try and create the cover that would allow for the murder of Uriah. Collateral damage is a, a, what I believe they call it these days. And so, uh, and so Uriah is murdered. She, Bathsheba, goes through a period of, of official mourning. And the second that it's over, David whisks her off to the palace and makes her his wife. And now it's official, and now it's okay, and now everything's okay, and he, he's kind of gotten away with it. Until you hit chapter 12. And then Nathan shows up and gives David a parable, a parable of a, of a man of great wealth and a great privilege who abuses that position to take from one who has nothing. And David rightfully condemns the hypothetical person before it is revealed that that person is him. And that then leads to repentance. And we have the glorious Psalm 51 that comes from that repentance. Now, why is Psalm 51 not here in the third Psalm? Why should that not kick things off? Would that not be more appropriate? Well, we'll talk more about why maybe next week. But I want us to understand that here, um, as we come to 2 Samuel 17, I hope we're, we're kind of there now, that David has already, and I'm just going to read from chapter 15, but you stay in 17 because that's where we're going. Um, 
The messenger came to David in chapter 15 saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And his son Absalom has now turned against him. Now, why all the Bathsheba stuff? Because in chapter 12, when Nathan condemns David, one of the judgments of God against David is that his son will turn against him. This is the fruit of his sin. And now Absalom has turned against him. He has done a coup. He has gradually turned the hearts of Israel against David by speaking against him. Just because the false health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers like to use the phrase, do not speak against the Lord's anointed, and do so in a terrible fashion when you should be doing exactly that against them. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean there's no principle of that in the scripture. And God had anointed David as king, and the people spoke against him to be able to turn him over, and Absalom appointed himself king. Not God, Absalom appointed himself king. And turned against David, and when David found out that the hearts of the men of Israel had gone after Absalom and against him, he said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, we'll come back to that word in a minute, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so David flees Jerusalem while he's still king, because a false king has declared himself king in his place. His people have turned against him. And the worst thing of all, it's his own son who's doing it. Now, when we come to chapter 17, we come to chapter 17 and look at um, verse 1. Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And so there is a plan for Ahithophel. Is that right, Jen? Ahithophel. My wife is great at pronouncing all this stuff. Normally when there's a, a genealogy to read in church, the, the kind of in-joke here is I'll get her up to read it because I don't want to do it. But um, yeah, I think it's Ahithophel. Ahithophel. That's just terrible. The letters are in front of me and I'm not even close. Anyway, Ahithophel is there and he was a counsellor of David and a well-regarded counsellor. And he was renowned as being a very wise man. A very wise man. And what he did, what he said, typically made sense. And his command here, his, his counsel here, his counsel is get thousands of men and pursue David and do it now. He's weary, he's weak, he's like a wounded animal. Now is the time to get him. Just take a huge force, thousands of people, and go. That's my advice. David had prayed specifically that the counts of Ahithophel would not be heeded. And there's another guy called Hushai. Verse 5. Absalom having thought that this would be, you know, verse 4, the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders. Then Absalom said, call Hushai. See, I can do that one. Hushai. It's a bit easier. Hushai is called, and he's another counselor. And unbeknownst to them, Hushai is an inside man. He is hashtag Team David. He's the guy who David still has as faithful to him, who is still within the, the administration of Absalom. And 
Hushai came to Absalom and said, what thus has Ahithophel spoken, I'm getting the hang of it now, what shall, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. And Hushai said to Absalom, that this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or some other place. As soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter amongst the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Bathsheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go into to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and the men with him will not one be left. Okay, summary. This is what's going on. The advice from Ahithophel is this. Gather some people quickly, thousands of people, gather them together, boom, go. Go now, get him while he's weak. And he says, no, 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 David, David knows warfare, says Hushai. He knows what to do, he'll hide away. This is what you do. Take some more time, get everybody together, not just a few thousand, all of the armies. Gather them all together, you go as well. Let's get ourselves together and then let's go and let's do it properly. Don't, don't put yourself out with just a few thousand that there might be a risk here. You wait and you do it properly. That's the advice. It's exactly what David wanted. It's exactly what David wanted. Now that, oh, I, could, I, did, I, did, I did consider the option this week of doing a whole week on the historical background and then doing Psalm 3, but we'll try and get it all done. But let's leave it there and let's go back to Psalm 3. Now we've got a historical background, okay? If you want to know what happens, you've got a Bible at home, no doubt, so you can find out what happens. But let's, let's pause it there. That's our snapshot of history. And then let us come to Psalm 3. Now there's lots of, lots of things already from that passage that we should associate. The word arise that we saw in chapter 15 is going to be relevant. Notice that the key figures here are counsellors. Ahithophel, by the way, I'm getting the hang of his name now. I thought I could have done it before Sunday, but there we go. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. That's where that bitterness came from. And these counsellors are here. And what do we know about counsellors? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. David had the, the ear of a godly counsel, Hushai. Ahithophel, though he was grieved, and rightly so, and though he was wounded, had turned against God and against his anointed. I'm going to keep using that phrase for David as a reason other than the fact that he was God's anointed, and God had him anointed by Samuel to be king, and therefore he was still king. And so, it is in this situation that we find ourselves when he fled, chapter 15, from Absalom, his son. Now, one other connection with the other passage of Scripture is this. Absalom is his son. How did Psalm 2 end? The immediately preceding Psalm. Don't see them as distinct, like any other chapter of Scripture. 
It ends with a warning to those who would oppose God and his anointed king, and it tells them as a warning, you need to kiss the son. And what is fascinating to me is that there in Psalm 1, the word for, the word for son is the Aramaic word for son, unusually. Why? To create a bit of a gap between the Hebrew word for son here in chapter 2. God's son is the one that is the anointed one. Here there is a son, but he's not anointed. He's not the righteous one. He's not the chosen son. So there's all of that going on. Gosh, and we haven't got to verse 1. Let's keep moving. Oh, Yahweh, Lord, capital letters, Yahweh, speaking to God personally on the basis of covenant relationship, the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How many are my foes? Many are, look at the word, rising against me. This is crucial. It's crucial for us to get these links. David, when he fled in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, he, he rose up, he arise and let's go. In Psalm chapter 1, the wicked will not rise in judgment. See, David right now is rising. That looks like a bad thing because he's fleeing. But in the context of Psalm 1 and 2, rising is a good thing because it is the wicked who won't rise. Here, he are the enemies who are rising against him. What's going to happen to those enemies eventually? They'll be rising no more. That's the implication you're supposed to get from this lexical link. More concerningly, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And then we have a sailor. Let me just deal with that quickly. Sailor is a word in the Psalms that is notoriously difficult to understand. For our purposes at this point, let us simply say this. It is used as a significant breaking point. More accurately, perhaps, as a pause. You're supposed to have sailor and then go, okay. In fact, if you're a British person sitting in England in your castle, reading your Bible, this is the point where you're supposed to pick up your cup of tea and go, little, little finger out, and take the time and go, and just dwell on it for a moment before you press on, Okay. So Selah is a pause. We've got a little break here. So what's he saying in this? Many people, because of the circumstances, David's now left Jerusalem. David has fled. Many people are against him. There's this danger of him being pursued. And in the midst of this, people are saying, God's not with him. God's not with him anymore. Why would they do that? Because these people, the people of Jerusalem, they still worship Yahweh. They're still God worshippers as far as they're concerned. But they are now, context Psalm 2, in opposition of Yahweh. Why? Because they're in opposition of his anointed. This is why I took the time to explain 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Solomon, Jesus, these prophecies molding together with the same language. Because what happens to the anointed king now is a type of what happens to the anointed king in the future. We're going to see it again and again and again. In fact, book one of the Psalms, chapter one through to chapter 41, is really dealing with so much of David's suffering. All these Psalms of David everywhere in book one. Almost without exception, the Davidic Psalms. And they're speaking of his suffering. And then you hit book two, Psalm 42, sons of Korah, 
And then we have the real lament kicking in. And the whole theme of lament in response to the suffering begins. And you see with David the life of Christ. And this is what the, <clears throat> the, the psalmist, what David himself, was aware of and what he is communicating. Because this is the reality. There are many people in the world today, many people, who will say, I believe in God. I trust in God. I'm a believer in God. But they reject Jesus. You reject the Lord's anointed, and God is against you. You are the wicked. You are chaff. You will not rise up. This is why he's making these connections. Psalm 2 was emphatic. I made it very, very clear last time. You are either with God or against God. You are either serving him or serving the enemy. You are either gathering with the kings and the spiritual kings that oversee them, or you're siding yourselves with Yahweh and his anointed king. You are either kissing the sun or you are opposed to him. There is no middle ground. And that principle is being carried over here. The people of Israel are saying, well, we're still Israelites, we're still Jewish, we're still worshippers of Yahweh. And God is there saying, no, you're not. When you're against my anointed, you are not mine. That's the setup happening here in the first section of Psalm 3. They're saying there is no salvation for David, that somehow God has cast him adrift. The reality is they're the ones who are adrift. Take a sip of tea. Verse 3. But you, O Yahweh, but, key word, okay? They are very significant, these kind of words sometimes. They think this. They think that you've deserted me. They think that I am not saved in you, that you haven't got, there's no salvation for me, that you're not going to help me. But, Yahweh, I know this. This is what he knows. You may be familiar with these from many worship songs. You, O Lord, you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Isn't that wonderful? You are my shield. You're the one who protects me. You are my glory. My reputation is in you. And you are the lifter of my head. You are my sustainer. David knew that he was going to be okay. You know how he knew he was going to be okay? Because he's God's anointed king. Now listen. This is where we have to be very careful with our Bible study. Okay? We have to ascertain meaning by seeking the authorial intent of Scripture. And then when we have that meaning, we can start to look for the significance of that meaning. We don't want to jump ahead of ourselves. So having established meaning... How does this impact us? Because I know that many people would say, oh, it's going to be okay because God is going to lift you up. He's, your, he's the one who will lift your head. You know what? Yes and no. You're not David. Nathan didn't come and give you a prophecy. You're not a type of Christ. And to be quite frank, you could drop down dead tomorrow and none of God's word would be invalidated in any way, shape or form. Tomorrow you could get sick and your sickness could get worse and worse and worse and you could have an extended, painful, miserable existence for the remainder of your days and you could die with everybody having turned their back on you, feeling lost and alone. And nothing in God's word would have been invalidated. Nothing. 
So we have to be careful that we don't take these verses and misapply them. So you say, so what is it then? Does this not apply to us at all? No, of course it applies to us. The reason that David knew he was safe was because God was going to protect his, David's glory, because God had promised things to David that if David were to die and be defeated, would remove God's glory and show God's promises to be invalid. And that's not possible. David knew that God was going to protect him and be his shield because otherwise God's promises would be invalidated. And so God knew that he would rise up. David, sorry, David knew that he would rise up, not just on the last day, but that God would lift his head even from this situation because otherwise God's promises would be invalidated. If you get cancer, if you get sick, if you, you know, have, have you know, whatever mental or physical ailment, none of God's promises are invalidated in those things in and of themselves. But if you ever were to be removed from the covenant of God, if you were ever to lose your salvation, if you were ever to be separate from his Holy Spirit, then God would be a liar. And it can never happen. Because he will protect his glory, he will be a shield for you and your faith, and he will lift your head on the last day. And that's what we place our trust in. And that, by the way, is how you do this. You understand the meaning and you find the significance. You don't just read yourself in a narcissistic kind of way into the scripture. So, all of that said, David does know that God is the one who's going to protect him, protect his reputation, and lift him up. And therefore, I cry out to Yahweh. Now, just because God hasn't said, I'm never going to give you cancer, does not mean that if we do get diagnosed with such a thing, or in some terrible situation, if God's never said you're not going to lose your job, so if we do lose your job, of course we cry out to him. Why do we cry out to him? Because he's Yahweh. Yahweh, I cry to you. It's on the basis of his name, his character, who he is, that he has covenant relationship with us. He loves us and he cares for us. That's why we cry out to him. And in crying out to him, we are not presuming that he will do for us what we wish. By crying out to him, we're humbling ourselves because we're acknowledging that he alone is the one who is able to do these things that we wish. But we bow our knee because we ultimately are desiring that his will be done. That's First Peter 5 in a nutshell, by the way. Anywho, so he cries aloud to Yahweh. Now here's an interesting little bit. He answered me from his holy hill. Now this is interesting, fascinating, is it not? That he's on Mount Zion time, David. What time of David? When he's fleeing Absalom. Is there a temple? Doesn't exist. And yet... The phrase holy hill, we found it in Psalm chapter 2. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Holy hill, holy hill. Not a common phrase, it's repeated. There's a lexical link. They're drawing the passages together. You're supposed to see the connection. You see how Psalm 3 follows Psalm 2? Why is he making this connection with the holy hill? Well, for David now, God is answering from his holy hill. That could mean that calling upon God in his dwelling place is making a connection with the eschatological truth of chapter 2. 
It could be that he's referencing to where God is in the tabernacle right now. It could be a reference to the future temple. But if nothing else, it is making a link that the one who is the ultimate king, who will reign on the holy hill, that that is the one from whom help comes. Now, this is something we see regularly, hugely throughout the Psalms. And it happens really gradually. And we've seen just a little glimpse in Psalm 1 and 2. And this is the first time that the door is creaking open a little bit to have a look. It's going to become very clear later in the Psalms. But I want you to see this. That God's anointed, his anointed king, is distinct from Yahweh, and yet, at the same time, he is Yahweh. Because who is on the holy hill? It's the king. Who is the one who's helping David? It's Yahweh. And where is Yahweh? On the holy hill. Who's on the holy hill? The king. Well, where's Yahweh? He's on the holy hill. Do you see what I'm doing here? This is what the psalmist is doing. And this is going to progress through the psalms. And it's going to become clearer. And I've said this to you so many times. And I will say it again and again and again. When the liberal theologians... Christians, so-called, continue to say ridiculous things like the deity of Jesus Christ is not a New Testament concept. It's something that was developed by the church in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. I say, well, you're half right. It's not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept. The teaching that the Messiah, that the anointed king was distinct from Yahweh and yet Yahweh is a thoroughly Old Testament doctrine. We've seen it again and again and again in Isaiah. And we're going to see it again and again in Psalms. That Jesus is God is a doctrine that precedes the birth of Jesus by centuries. It's not something made up centuries later. Please understand that. I'm excited, but I've got to keep moving. Okay, so he's, he's answering him from the holy hill because, because the king is Yahweh and, and king is distinct from Yahweh. You needed to have a cup of tea then, didn't you? Just to take a pause. There's your next sailor. That's our section, okay? And you can see why already, by the way, these sailors are there. Because it's not something that would necessarily immediately grab you. You have to go, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Holy Hill, Holy Hill. Where did I hear, Where did I hear Holy Hill? Oh, that was the last song. Who's on the Holy Hill? You need a pause to think. And so often, sailors come at the end of a structural section, like a verse or a chorus or something like that. But sometimes they come like almost in the middle of a sentence, just in the middle of a thought. Just there's a, there's a statement and then boom, sailor. It's like, where's that come from? And you know, okay, let me just go and put the kettle on and there's something here I need to see to be able to make sense of what's to follow. Now, hopefully we've made sense of it enough that we can find what's going to happen in this last section. Verse 5. I lay down and I slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me and all around. Now, I know that you like verse 5 for your devotionals. I know that you have that verse with you when you have your cup of coffee. Oh, I've woken up again. The Lord sustained me. Hallelujah. There's, there's verse 5. No, it's not. Yes, it's kind of vaguely true. But what's going on here is this, that David went to sleep knowing that Ahithophel, just about there, that Ahithophel is saying to the king, advice that the king's almost always going to follow to send myriads, thousands of people after him. And David's, David, what are you going to do? What are you going to do now that Ahithophel is saying, tomorrow morning, tonight even, you need to get thousands of people to go and get David. David says, I'm, I'm going to go to sleep. 
That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to sleep. Hallelujah. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do is go to sleep. Not because like David you knew you're going to wake up in the morning, because you might not. But because you know that God is good and that he's sovereign and he's in control while you sleep. And sometimes for some of us that's the hardest thing for us to get our heads around. Because we don't even realise how much we crave being in control, touching different things, making sure God doesn't drop any balls until we have to go to sleep when we can do nothing. And then we see the degree to which we do or don't trust God. David has thousands of people. Look at that reference to thousands. Straight out of 2 Samuel, verse 6 here. Thousands of people all raring to go. And what are you going to do? Lie down, go to sleep, get up. Lie down, go to sleep, get up. Why? Because God is my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. That's all I'm going to do. And so verse 7, ah, we come to it again. Arise, O God. They're rising up. They're not going to rise on the last day. David's risen to flee. And what does all of these risings come to in conclusion? God, we need you to rise. You need to rise up. They've risen up to do something. You need to rise up. There is a connection here with the eschatological judgment of Psalm 1. They will not rise. The wicked will not rise. There's a connection with the rising in Psalm 1 and all the rises here in 2 Samuel and here in Psalm 3 at the beginning and at the end. And notice, by the way, that in Psalm 3, we have a rise sandwich, inclusio, bookend. Rise at the beginning. Many are rising against me. And then at the end, rise, O God. Rise, O Lord. Rise, Yahweh. Yahweh needs to rise up. That's the response, because on the last day he will rise up, and the one who will rise on the last day and judge the wicked, he is alive now, he does not slumber, he does not sleep, that's coming up in a very shortly another psalm, and he is there, and therefore if he can rise on the last day, he can rise now. So when you go to God, the God that you go to, the God that you bow the knee before, the God that you bring your cares and your burdens and your needs and your concerns to, that God, that same God, is the God who on the last day will destroy his enemies with the breath of his mouth, will blow away the wicked like chaff, and will see his righteous glory cover the earth. That's the same God that you and I have the privilege to pray to each and every moment. Hallelujah, huh? Man, that's why we're told, arise, O Lord. By the way, Bible study students, that's why you, take the, you have a look for these connections. Because when words are repeated, they're making a point. They're trying to show you things. They're trying to link to things so that you can make these kind of conclusions. So arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. I could say more about that, but I'm, I'm out of time. So... He's crying out on Yahweh to save him. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. We mentioned this briefly last time, but I want you to see that there are allusions here to an earlier passage of Scripture that we had allusions to in chapter 2 and we had allusions to in chapter 1, and that is the absolutely foundational, significant passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3. 
And in Genesis 3, the anointed one of God, the seed of the woman, the, 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 the God's anointed king, this one is going to crush the head of the serpent. And here, there is some head crushing going on. Striking of cheeks and breaking of teeth. You are supposed to see the connection. God will defeat his enemies through his anointed king. Who is the anointed king right now? That's David. What's he doing? Hiding in a cave. So what needs to happen? God needs to rise up and to crush his enemies so that David can crush them once again. He's aware that ultimately any victory that he, David, has, any crushing he gets to do is ultimately being done by the Lord. And that is why he makes this wonderful, glorious conclusion in verse 8. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. I have two things to say about this in closing before you have a longer sailor to sing a song of worship. Firstly, this. Notice in the second half of the verse how he prays for blessings to be on Yahweh's people. Hold on a second. Are these the same people who've sided with Absalom? Are these the same people who have received Absalom as king, who have rejected the, the Lord's anointed? Uh-huh. And what does David do? He prays for them, that God would bless them. That's loving your enemies right there. Why would David do such a thing? Because they're his covenant people as well. They're the covenant people. And what's David's great concern? David's great concern is not whether he lives nor dies. David's great concern, as was clear in 2 Samuel 15 when I read that section, as is clear here in this psalm, David's great concern is God and his glory. And if David were to die, so what? But God will be shown to be a liar. That's the issue. That's the thing. In your prayers, whatever you pray for, if you can pray to the end for your sake, for your glory, then that's how we need to be praying. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not abracadabra. It's not like, you know, oh God, please do this for me. Oh, he still won't do it. Oh, in Jesus' name, abracadabra, now it happens, you know. That's not what it's about. It means that we're praying on the basis of the character and the name of God. And, and yes, partly that means we can come to God in prayer because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen, hallelujah. But at the same time, it also means that the prayers that we come to him with, we come to him with those prayers because of who he is, his name, his character. And we want to see him glorified. And so when you say, hey, God, please give me a nicer car because I'd like to look cool when I drive around. Hey, God, please, can you give me some more luxuries? Hey, God, can you make my life more comfortable? Hey, God, can you remove these problems because, you know, life's easier without them. Then you put in Jesus' name on the end and you're lying because really it's in your name and it's all about you and your character. He was concerned for the people of God because he did not want God God's name to be shamed. He did not want God's reputation to be diminished. We are called Christians. We carry the name of Christ. It should be our desire not to live comfortable, cozy lives. 
but for us to live in such a way that upholds the reputation of our great God. Which brings me nicely to my final point. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation is his. He chooses. He decrees. He honors. He responds. It is him. And not just in salvation, but in in your job and in your work and in everything. We have a sovereign God. And so we bow the knee before him. Because if we are being threatened by our enemies, who decides whether they are victorious or not? God does. Salvation belongs to him. So what do we do when trials come, when difficulties surround us, when everything goes pear-shaped, as we like to say in England? What do we do in circumstances? This is what we do. We cry out to him to whom salvation belongs. And then we go to sleep. And we trust. We trust in his name. We trust in his character. We trust in who he is. And we rejoice whatever the outcome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of it. We thank you for the encouragement found within it. Lord, I pray that today there would be many who have heard this message who would be encouraged, encouraged to trust in you, encouraged to bow the knee before you, before your word, and able to sleep, to rest, to trust in you. And Lord, now, may we arise and may we worship you in whom salvation is found. To all glory, all glory be to your name. Amen.